Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Bad Gaze, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode, we profile a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking about evil and complicated people, focusing on men because cis men we can all agree are definitionally the most bad. We want to ask why we don't remember our villains as well as we sometimes remember our heroes. Last week, we looked at the spy who loved me, Anthony Blunt. Hmm. Ben, who are we looking at this week? This week, we're going to be talking about the Weimar-era gay publisher and activist Friedrich Ratzuweit. Um, should we do another German pronunciation lesson? No. Okay. <laughs> um, so, born in 1876, Ratzuweit came to public gay prominence in 1923 when he founded the Bund für Menschenrecht, uh, the Federation for Human Rights. I jokingly mistranslate this as the Human Rights Campaign, uh, and you'll see why later. Um, and began to publish a lot of gay, lesbian, and trans-themed periodicals. So, Radzuweit was born in Königsberg in 1876, and in 1901, he moved to Berlin. He married a woman, Johanna Schneider, and he opened a ladies' clothing shop. Um, around 1901, um, or rather around the turn of the 20th century, the organizations that will come to structure the ideological and organizational spectrum of the pre-Nazi German gay movements are beginning to form and take shape. So on one poll, uh, founded in 1899, you have the Wissenschaftliches Humanitäres Komitee, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which is the movement that grew up around the work and activism of the Jewish socialist gay sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld. Um, Hirschfeld keeps coming back as a character in these episodes, and I think it's worth here spending some time laying out kind of the ideological contours of these debates. So the Hirschfeldian movement is allied to varying degrees of comfort and success with the Social Democratic Party. Um, this is a social, liberal, expert-oriented, scientific um, movement. The motto is through science to justice. Um, this is a movement, or rather an initiative, um, association of scholars, which is producing scientific work and theory that is by experts for experts, and a lot of the rhetoric that they're using in public campaigns to change paragraph 175, which is the anti-sodomy law at the time, paragraph 175 becomes the law in all of Germany after unification in 1870. Um, there are various campaigns throughout the um, Bismarck era and the Weimar Republic years to repeal it, um, campaigns that often get very close to succeeding. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, the Nazis then sharpen the penalties in the law. Um, after the war in the East, the law goes back to its pre-war or pre-Nazi state. In the West, the Nazi law is kept on the books until 1969. Um, then in 1969, in both the East and the West, the penalties are removed. 
um, and it becomes um, the law is still on the books, but it's only a matter of unequal age of consent. Mm-hmm. And then in 1995, after the reunification of Germany, finally the whole law is struck. So that's this um, Wissenschaftliches Humanitäres Komitee movement. It's very oriented around you know persuading the Social Democrats to. Uh, change this law when they get into power, and they have some success at doing this. August Bebel, um, a very well-known member of the reformist wing or the revisionist wing of the Social Democratic Party, ends up coming out publicly in favor of the overturn of this law, and he and many other Social Democrats sign petitions um, to the Reichstag uh, over various uh, points of time, demanding unsuccessfully that the law changed. Um, And there's been some really good critical work in the past few years about the ways in which the science and the rhetoric of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, um, to varying degrees, collaborated with eugenics um, in this kind of left eugenics movement that you also see with figures like Margaret Sanger and a lot of people who are basing their arguments for sexual liberation on the idea of moving towards a kind of scientific or rational understanding of human relationships. Um, so that's sort of one pole. The other pole is the movement of anarchist masculinists that grows up around Adolf Brand and a journal called Der Eigene, uh, which starts publishing three years before the founding of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. That's 1899. Der Eigene begins in 1896. Um, the title of Der Eigene, the journal, refers to the anarchist work Der Einzige und sein Eigentum uh, by Max Stirner. And this is an anarchist journal that weaves together cultural, artistic, and political material. There's poetry, there's prose, there's political manifestos, there's nude photography. This is a cultural nationalist movement. It's a masculinist movement. It is sometimes a pederastic movement. Um, and sometimes it ends up having anti-Semitic... Um, incredibly misogynistic um, sort of proto-fascist expressions, and you see that maybe in how some of those ideas filtered into the way that Rehm and gay Nazis are thinking about themselves. Um, And sometimes it has this left expressionist um, viewpoint, and there are actually some members of the Communist Party who will write in Der Eigene and other kind of masculinist Mm. journals. Um, So up until the revolutions of 1918 and 1919, um, the movement, and I put the word movement in heavy quotes here, just consists of these journals, which are all very small. Um, You know, the Der Eigene people are connected to kind of broader cultural trends and expressionism. You know, there's a um, poetry cult that builds up around Stefan Georg that has a lot of uh, kind of gay leanings, and Der Eigene is kind of part of that. So these things are connected to broader cultural movements, but they're small circulation magazines, and you might have heard about them. Um, Hirschfeld becomes a national celebrity in the first years of the 20th century because of the Eulenberg Affair, where um, a member of the Kaiser's inner circle is accused of being gay, and Hirschfeld ends up testifying at various defamation trials that result. Um, But it's only after the revolution... Um, And actually, Hirschfeld, on the day after the revolution, ends up giving a speech in front of the Reichstag, kind of greeting the new uh, social democratic Weimar Republic. It's only after that that um, the Weimar gay 
movement, and when I say movement, I'm now actually talking about a mass movement, begins. So uh, people are coming home from the war, people are moving into cities, it's a tremendously um, tumultuous time in all of Germany, and these things called friendship societies begin to spring up in different cities, and these are places, cafes, where um, homosexuals could actually meet openly. And um, also in 1919, the film Anders als die Andern, uh, different from the others, is made. That's a film where Hirschfeld stars, and it's a sort of sympathetic look at a man who is blackmailed um, for being homosexual, and uh, the point of the film is that we have to change the law in order to uh, avoid these tragedies from happening, that person commits suicide. Um, and by 1920, these friendship cafes had come together and created a national organization that was called the German Friendship League, and they printed a magazine called Freundschaft, and the first print run in uh, 1920 had a run of 20,000 copies, which is like orders of magnitude bigger than any of the journals had been before. Mm -hmm. And so um, in the first issue, someone named Max Danielson wrote, uh, quote, The World War swept disaster over the old world. A new age dawned. The hour of liberation is now or never for us. We, the ostracized, persecuted, and misjudged, are set aglow by a new age of equal respect and equality. Um, the Munich Friendship League would be led by Richard Linzat, who was a war veteran, 21 years old at the time. Um, he ended up moving to Berlin and uh, joining the Communist Party. And then uh, later on in the 1920s, um, when there was a proposal in front of the Reichstag that actually had a very good shot of passing that would have removed uh, penalties for male homosexuality between consenting adults but would have continued to prosecute male sex workers mm -hmm. and rent boys, he ends up basically whipping the Communist Party against that and he splits the um, Scientific Humanitarian Committee, of which he is a member at that point, um, and that kind of breaks that organization because Hirschfeld is in favor of passing something in order to protect some people and Linzert says no if we're not going to protect these rent boys who are sort of the working class people uh, who are the most affected by this law then why are we even doing it? So back to 1919 the social democratic government of Germany funds Hirschfeld to launch this institute for sexual science which is this enormous a uh, beautiful 50-room building on Beethovenstrasse with libraries and um, doctor's offices and residences. And uh, Hirschfeld, at this point, is also collaborating with the Berlin police to create identity cards for trans people so that they can walk around on the streets um, without persecution and without being arrested for wearing the wrong clothing. But again, this Hirschfeldian movement is very much about experts making these determinations. And so, um, again, there's a lot of recent really good critical trans theory work that's been done about the ways in which Hirschfeld's work with trans people um, represents both a really admirable fight on behalf of gender self-determination and also... Um, is incredibly kind of haunted and violent and problematic. There's a really good book by Heike Bauer called The Hirschfeld Archives that explores a lot of that really well. Um, so this friendship cafe movement begins to join up with an emerging gay commercial world of bars and of cafes and of clubs. And this is where we get back to our bad boy, uh, Ratzeweid, finally. Um, 
1923, he adopts a leadership position in this National Association of Friendship Cafes and kind of engineers a split to create his own organization that he controls, which is in some ways a political movement and in some ways a front for his businesses. Um, and he renames this the Bonifimenschenrechte, the League for Human Rights. Um, and what he immediately begins to do is to produce a series of magazines that are aimed at gay men, at lesbians, and at trans people. Um, and these magazines all have circulations over 50,000, and his organization has hundreds of thousands of people uh, registered as members. Wow. Um, and again, this is the only mass movement gay rights organization in uh, Germany at this time. All of these other organizations are... Um, small and either scientific experts for scientific experts or scientific experts trying to sort of advise the public or um, a sort of self-conceived expressionist cultural elite. So the first of these magazines uh, and the one that's published the whole life of the organization, 10 years from 23 to 33, is called the Zeitschrift Humanrecht. It's a monthly magazine, the newspaper for human rights or the magazine for human rights. Radzovite also uses his businesses to publish his own novels, which have great titles like Men for Sale and Symphony of Eros. His company produces gramophone records with uh, gay themes, um, and he also produces a series of other magazines, and I'm going to talk about three of them because I think they're really interesting. One of them is called Der Insel, and Der Insel is the first magazine for and about what we might now call Twinks. And he gets in a lot of trouble with Der Insel because it has a lot of very provocative images of um, men who are between the ages of 14 and 21, let's just say. Um, he then uh, starts a magazine called Die Freunden, Wochenschrift für ihr alle Frauenfreundschaft, The Girlfriend, the weekly magazine for ideal women's friendship, um, for a while, this is published under the name Single Women because of various censorship issues. Um, and this is the first lesbian magazine in the world. Um, and interestingly, it's a magazine that is mostly written by lesbians for lesbians. So all of these magazines would share a lot of kind of big articles or editorials that would be written by uh, Radzovite himself or some of his other male colleagues, and they would appear kind of in all of the different magazines. But... Die Freunden has a lot of copy that is really for the first time by, for, and about women, um, as opposed, again, to these other movements which are conceiving of themselves as an elite speaking to the people. Mm -hmm. And the class character of Radzivite's businesses is very, like, petty bourgeois lower middle class. That's who these magazines are kind of written to, and this kind of urban, homosexual um, person who is engaging in this subculture. And the magazines are full of ads for different stores and different restaurants and different balls and different dances and different tea rooms and different drag clubs, etc. Um, beginning as an insert in the back of Die Freunden is, I think, one of Radzivite's most remarkable magazines, which is called Das Dritte Geschlecht, The Third Gender. And this is one of the first trans magazines ever. Um, das Dritte Geschlecht is, again, also a lot of it written by trans people and about trans people. And while there might be, you know, an account by a trans person in one of Hirschfeld's magazines, it's always framed within this kind of doctor's expertise. And it's always presented as, well, here's the case, and now I, the great doctor, whether it's mm -hmm. Hirschfeld or another one of his colleagues, am going to tell you 
about this, and I'm going to kind of put this in sense for you. Whereas das dritte Geschlecht, while it does have articles by cis people, contains a lot of um, poetry and prose and essays and fiction by trans people, for trans people, and about trans people, and that is really revolutionary. Um, And our listeners who speak German will be excited to know that um, Rainer Herrn, who's a really uh, great historian uh, and a colleague of mine in Berlin at the Magnus-Hirschfeld-Gesellschaft, edited a volume of the complete Das Dritte Geschlecht, which has been published in 2016 by a Hamburg publisher called Minnerschwam, and so people can find that, and there's some articles about that if people are interested. Now, these magazines do get in trouble with censorship often, and they push the boundaries, um, like Der Eigene, unlike Hirschfeld's magazines. Um, they're sold at newsstands, and they still contain a lot of frankness and a lot of nudity. So at this point, you may be wondering, why is this guy a bad gay? He sounds great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but... The thing about Radzivite is he seems to have had very few principles of his own, and he um, will follow prevailing political trends wherever they lead. And so, well, as the where 19- this is going, yeah. So, as the 1930s begin, you may begin to see where this is going. So, Radzivite. Um, in the very late 1920s, decides to conduct a survey about politics of his members. And we have the published numbers. Um, Radzivite sent 50,000 questionnaires out, and 37,000 of them were returned. Um, And the results um, were that um, of the about 31,000 members who stated their affiliation with a political party... um, just over half selected either the Social Democrats or the Communists. Um, And about a third uh, named parties of the center, and then the remainder were divided between the um, right and the far right. But Radzivite used that uh, survey to argue that homosexuality was essentially apolitical. He wrote, the movement is, quote, based solely on the grounds of law and human understanding. Um, Radzivite did not pursue, uh, unlike Hirschfeld, any alliances, whether formal or informal, with any parties at this point. And while members of the organization were told that the Social Democrats and the Communists were voting for the repeal of these sodomy laws and every other party is voting consistently against it, Um, he published a series of articles with very conflicting and increasingly very troubling political messages. So, for example, in 1931, in Die Freunden, uh, the lesbian-oriented magazine, Radzivite wrote an editorial, quote, We do not believe that even the National Socialists will proceed so rigorously against homosexuals as they announced before the September 1930 elections. Anyone who consistently reads the National Socialist newspapers will sometimes find very reasonable articles on homosexuality. These newspapers generally do not condemn homosexuals as social pariahs, but on the whole only want to go over those Jews, especially Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who wish to, in an ugly way, drag people's sex lives into the public. Close quote. And so Ratzevite is arguing here that even right-wing parties could be trusted to come around on the homosexual question. He writes, and I quote, We do not want to argue here and to justify what morality and so-called custom are. We only want to make the point that everything can be changed over the course of time. 
Moral concepts are different today than they were a hundred years ago. This is even acknowledged by right-wing circles. The vast majority of the homosexual men of Germany do not intend to publicly display their relations and would never have thought of creating a homosexual movement if the legislators were not so irrational. The homosexual men of Germany are of the opinion that one should not talk about these things at all, and that no one is concerned by the way in which two men, by their free will and by mutual consent, have sexual intercourse in their secret chamber. So, first off, I think it would be interesting to have uh, Friedrich Ratzuweit or Andrew Sullivan I was literally about to say guessing this. game. Yeah. But you see this language, which I think is really familiar to us from the homonormative movements of the 1990s. And, I mean, we talked a little bit about in that episode whether or not you could talk about um, previous centrist or conservative gay movements within that framework. And again, it's important to note that you know, in the environment of Germany in the 1920s and early 1930s um, is very different than the environment of the United States in the 1990s. And writing anything in a homosexual magazine is a more radical act. But still, obviously, um, you have somebody who is willing to collaborate with anti-Semitism um, and somebody who is trying to argue that there's really no kind of political basis for mm -hmm. this. Um, and then it gets worse. Uh, later that year, in an article in a newsletter he wrote called Freundschaftsblatt that was so positive, it inspired the mainstream German paper to publish an article under the headline, The Third Gender Welcomes the Third Reich. Ratzewite claimed that the existence of homosexuals, like our bad boy SA commander Ernst Rehm, proved that Nazi leaders were not personally homophobic. He said that Hitler fit into a great line of manly leaders, many of whom were homosexuals. And the article, which is structured as an open letter to Hitler, praised Hitler's focus on, quote, political issues rather than sexual questions, and offered to, quote, inform him in a nonpartisan way about the prevalence of homosexuality. And it presented a list of political requests that it described as reasonable, including equalizing the age of consent, allowing same-sex sexual contact in private between consenting adults, and strengthening, rather than striking, the laws against prostitution and intergenerational sex. And in defenses of that article that were published in later issues of his magazines, because these generated a lot of negative feedback, as you can imagine, Ratzuweit acknowledged that the Hitler camp created anti-homosexual propaganda, but he argued that, first off, the names of homosexuals in the Nazi party should be kept secret, they shouldn't be outed, and second, that their presence showed that the party would not seriously prosecute heteronormative homosexuals if it were in power. He didn't use the word heteronormative, but there we go. And so uh, the conclusion that we can draw is that Ratzevite, who's the publisher of a widely circulated newsletters and the head of a genuinely mass movement organization, had an opportunity to mobilize his not insignificant forces against the rise of fascism, and he refused. Instead, he chose to collaborate with anti-Semitic rhetoric, denounce the most outrageous fascist statements in mild terms, and hope for accommodations and concessions once they took power. And around this time, he allegedly wrote Hitler asking for protection for right-wing homosexuals. Now, lest you think that we have an episode of Bad Gays that doesn't have an evil twink in it, <laughs> um, a lot of people blame Ratzuweit's turn towards fascist collaboration on his lover, Martin Butzko Ratzuweit. And you'll notice that Martin has the same last name, and this is because Friedrich actually adopted Martin as his son, and this was not an uncommon strategy at this time uh, for men in intergenerational relationships who hoped to be able to leave stuff to their partner or hoped to be able to kind of uh, have their relationship recognized in some way by the state. 
Um, he met Martin in the late 1920s, and Martin had been uh, born in 1900, uh, so about 25 years younger than Friedrich. And Martin was a prominent Hitler youth, and Friedrich met him on the street after he had just beat up a bunch of communists. Um, Martin ended up taking a leadership role in the magazines right around the time when Friedrich's politics began to turn to the right. And it's not known whether Friedrich saw Martin as insurance against the right coming to power or whether he genuinely began to believe the things that this attractive younger man was telling him. In any case, uh, before he could see how wrong he had been in April 1932, Friedrich uh, died of tuberculosis. Um, Martin Radzuweit publishes, uh, right after Friedrich dies, um, a kind of memorial essay to him, and all of the magazines kind of turn into this um, memorial to their founder. Um, Martin, in that obituary, speaks um, about, quote, the times of political peace uh, with some nostalgia, but um, so is not at this point... Um, you know, as it looks like the Nazis are actually coming to power, he's not expressing alliance with them um, openly. Um, Martin died in 1933 of a cause I'm not sure of. Um, and then before I talk about kind of what happened to the organization as the Nazis came to power, I want to kind of describe what happened to some of those other characters from this German movement that we described at the beginning of the story, because I think it's interesting to hear how they all kind of navigated what happened. Mm -hmm. um, so Martin died of, uh, in 1933 of an unknown cause. Um, I haven't been able to find a cause of death for him. I don't know whether it was illness. I don't know whether it was suicide. I don't know whether he was arrested. Um, Magnus Hirschfeld dies in Nice in exile in 1935. Um, in 1935, uh, or rather in 1933 when the Nazis come to power, the institute is destroyed and its records are burned and its books are burned in that famous uh, book burning on Openplatz, not Bibelplatz. Um, it was thought that there was sort of nothing left from Hirschfeld. Uh, when he was on his world tour, he had been traveling with a guy named Li Xiu Tong, who was his much younger lover, who was born in Taiwan. And no one really knew what had come of Tong during the war, and no one knew what had come of Hirschfeld's uh, belongings, the stuff that he had with him, for the four years that it had been that he was traveling after he had left Germany. Um, in 1984 in West Berlin, Rainer Herrn, who I mentioned earlier, along with Ralf Dose and Jens Dobler and a lot of other um, German gay historians of that sort of uh, gay liberation era first generation, um, founded an organization in Berlin called the Magnus Hirschfeld Gesellschaft, with which I've been associated in the past. The Hirschfeld Gesellschaft aimed to um, relaunch Hirschfeld's project and to begin doing that by collecting as many of Hirschfeld's books and belongings as could be found by republishing a lot of his writing. A lot of his uh, work had been out of print at that time, and his legacy had been forgotten. And they did some really amazing work um, interviewing people who still remembered having been at the Institute, um, collecting sources, uh, finding Hirschfeld's descendants, f um, you know, putting a huge amount of stuff together. Um, and so Ralf Dose, who is one of the leaders of that group, in the very early days of the internet, um, posted something on a Usenet group, basically looking for anything Hirschfeld-related. And a few years later, he gets an email from a guy in Canada who had been looking through his building's trash dumpster, and I forget exactly why, 
and had found this suitcase full of books and a death mask with the name Magnus Hirschfeld on it. Um, and this turned out to have been carried by Hirschfeld's then lover um, back to Taiwan and then to Canada where he and his family had moved. And when he died, they threw it out and just happened to be found. And so now that's back in Berlin and can be viewed in the Hirschfeld Gesellschaft's offices, which is kind of an incredible story, I think. Yeah, really incredible story. In fact, um, I think there's a <clears throat> it's a subject of a podcast of Making Gay History. It is, yes. There's a great episode of Making Gay History, uh, which is a wonderful podcast about gay heroes. Um, most of the Making Gay History episodes you hear directly from whoever it is that is being discussed. The Hirschfeld episode is about Ralf Dose and about the kind of reconstruction of Hirschfeld's legacy, and that story is a really central part of it, and it's really worth listening yeah, to. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Yeah. It is, yeah. Um, Adolf Brand, uh, the founder of that kind of cultural nationalist Der Eigene, he ends up surviving the Nazis, but not the war. And he was killed in an Allied air raid in April of 1945, so only about a month before the war ended. One month, and he would have made it. Um, so what happened to the Bund für Menschenrechte, which had been so careful to distance itself from party politics and to collaborate with the rise of fascism? Um, Bitterly and unsurprisingly, its cautious refusal to take a stand on the crucial issues of its day, its kind words about Hitler, and its collaboration with poisonous anti-Semitism bought it exactly no protection when the Nazi regime set its murderous sights on queer people and queer institutions. And I was looking through the organization's file uh, in the archive of the Schwulis Museum, the Gay Museum in Berlin, where I'm on the board, and the final document is a letter celebrating the organization's disillusion, and the last line of the letter is... The liquidation has ended. Heil Hitler. Stormtroopers had raided and destroyed the publishing house, and this document, like the Nazi bunker on my street and the tiny bronze memorials to murdered Jews set into the cobblestone sidewalks, I think is a clear reminder of the dangers of our time and their clear echoes in the past. Accommodation and collaboration are moral and political failures even on their own terms, and there is no sure path to safety except to win the fight for the kind of world we want to live in. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgayspod. And saying nice things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. Well, it's a fascinating and inevitably tragic story. Um, it makes me wonder, was there uh, any leeway granted for any sort of homonormative gaze from that period going into the Nazi period? Or there was what was the the nature of the repression of 
uh, gay, gay men under the Nazis was just total? It's an interesting question, um, and it's very varied, and it's also not what I'm an expert on, um, but my understanding is that it was a source of oppression on its own right, but that it was not as inevitable that you would be captured and prosecuted and deported as it was if you were, for example, Jewish or mm -hmm. disabled. Um, and I think that was especially true for lesbians who were still persecuted under Nazism, absolutely, and were definitely victims of Nazism. And there's a kind of historical debate in Germany about whether lesbians can be considered victims of Nazism, and I think the answer is obviously yes, but the persecution looks a little bit different even than the persecution of gay men, which also looks a little bit different than the persecution of um, Jews and other minorities. Mm -hmm. And the really good work on this has been done by, through a German speaker, there's a book by Andreas Pritzel uh, called Auf der Weg der zur Strafe. Um, for English-speaking listeners, there's a really good article by Laurie Marhofer uh, from about a year ago that's a micro-history of the persecution of lesbians by the Gestapo. It's sort of one story that explores um, the different ways that um, persecution worked for lesbians and gay men. Mm -hmm. um, and I can also really recommend the work of the historian Anna Haikova um, about queer Jews and their persecution during the Holocaust, because I think too often, and this is one of Anna's uh, bugaboos, and I think a really important point that she makes, in the historiography of the Holocaust or in the historiography of Nazi oppression, you either have, as your protagonists, presumed German, you know, white German, Gentile German homosexuals, or you have presumed heterosexual racial minorities, um, or presumed heterosexual Jews. And Anna has done a lot of really incredible work at uncovering stories of queer Jewish persecution and resistance during the Holocaust, and her work is really worth looking up. Throughout this series of podcasts, we've um, we keep coming back to these this relationship between assimilationists and um, radicals, mm -hmm. to, for lack of a better word. What is it that makes the assimilationist path so attractive to? certain gay, gay men when it seems that there's so many of these warnings from history about uh, how ineffective it is when faced with reactionary or fascist threats? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I would be out on the streets every day enacting it and, you know, convincing gay people and lesbians not to be assimilationists or fascist collaborators. Um, I think if you are somebody who has an upper or middle class background or upper or middle class aspirations, um, an assimilationist path can seem very safe and can seem very, I don't want to say easy, but can seem like a kind of way to integrate. I mean, you can read into Andrew Sullivan's writing, for example, this sort of tremendous longing to be normal, which I think is something we can all understand in a society where minoritized people are under huge amounts of stress and huge amounts of political threat. 
um, what I'll say about sort of how things are going now is that I think we see a lot of Radzuvites in today's political climate. Um, there was a recent article by uh, the historian Samuel Hunecker, who just came out of Stanford and is starting, I think, at George Mason in the fall, about um, gay votes for European far-right political parties. And basically, in France and Germany, um, gay men and lesbians who are not racialized, so gay men and lesbians who are quote-unquote white, vote for the IFD or for Le Pen in larger quantities than the national average. Um, again, because these parties are doing something I think the Nazis never did, um, but that kind of follows Ratzewite's strategy, where even as they are viciously anti-gay in a lot of ways, IFD politicians in German state parliaments, for example, have introduced bills to uh, return the anti-sodomy laws to the books. Um, the political propaganda that's produced by these parties um, tells gay people that, you know, much as Ratzevite was saying, we just want to live our lives in private and it's the dirty Jew Hirschfeld who wants to drag you out onto the street, basically, um, you know, you've won your rights here in this beautiful liberal secular Europe and now beautiful liberal secular Europe is being threatened by these, you know, this unwashed horde of Muslim immigrants who are going to come here and change your culture and make things unsafe for you. Um, and it's in, really ironically the weaponization of a certain type of um, oppression of queer people and uh, homosexual people. Exactly. Back, which, which, which emerged out of that sort of Western liberal society that's then weaponized back in order to bring uh, homosexual people back into, into the fold and weaponized against Muslims. Absolutely, and it's being done by the same people who have always persecuted us. If you want to talk about a sort of Radzivite equivalent in today's Germany, um, somebody who's not in a political party but who is in the movement and making these kinds of arguments, um, there is a politunter, or like, you know, political genderfuck style drag queen, and there's a tradition of that in Germany going back to the sort of early days of gay liberation. Um, her name is Patsy Lamour-Lelove. And she has published a series of books. The most infamous one is called Beisreflexe, um, which argue that, I mean, on the surface, what they're arguing is that contemporary queer politics have become too obsessed with the policing of linguistic microaggression. And on its face, that is a claim to which I might have some sympathy. But the books um, go on to say things like, and I'm quoting from the uh, preface, you know, we have to build a movement against racism and also against Islam in Europe. And, you know, we have to take critical positions against Islam. We have to actually talk honestly about what these migrants are bringing. Patsy has been involved with a movement in a neighborhood in Berlin called Neukölln, where there's been um, a rise in anti-queer and anti-Semitic attacks that I think is tied to the rapid gentrification of that neighborhood. Um, and has tried to create a movement in Neukölln, the sort of statement of which is, let's be honest about these young Arab and Turkish men who are attacking um, visibly queer people and attacking Jews. And There was know, a similar situation uh, about 10 years ago in the UK in Tower Hamlets with liberal journalists like Johan Hari, who were raising the same uh, dog whistles, I'll say. 
Right. And I mean, the ironic thing about Patsy and her kind of crew is that they will constantly claim that they're the true leftists and that they're the ones who are actually, you know, keeping the Freudo-Marxian emancipatory tradition of gay liberation alive against this American-style, politically correct, queer feminist smothering of all things good and holy. Um, But to me, it looks like collaboration. I'm sorry. Well... On that note, maybe we should draw us to a close with yeah. the old question. Bad gay? I'm going to say that anybody who writes an article that can be characterized as the third gender greets the third Reich um, can be characterized as a bad gay. Yeah. That but, sounds reasonable. Yeah. Um, a bad gay who did some interesting things earlier in his life. Um, people who want to read more about Radzuweit can uh, go to a few places. Um, they can read me if you Google Ben Miller, uh, Out History, Friedrich Ratzuweit, and you can get the spelling of his name from the show title. Um, you can find an article that I wrote for the American uh, Gay History website, Out History, and you may recognize some of the sentences in the article, uh, but you can send it to your friends. Um, some of my information uh, about the emergence of the Friendship Cafes movement came from an article in the Socialist Review, um, called Richard Linzard and the First Sexual Liberation Movement. And then, uh, to my mind, the two best books about the sort of Weimar and pre-Weimar um, sexual politics and sexual cultures of Berlin and of Germany are Robert Beachy's book, Gay Berlin, which is compulsively readable and a really nice introduction to this period, and then Laurie Marhofer's book, Sex in the Weimar Republic, which... Um, goes a little bit deeper into the political and intellectual cultures of sex, not just gay sex, but uh, all kinds of non-normative sex, um, and makes some really provocative and challenging points. So I would encourage people to check those out. Um, I would also encourage people to support us on Patreon, and we've talked earlier in the show about how you can do that. I would encourage people to follow us on Twitter at BadGaysPod, to follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And me at Hugh Lemmy. Thanks so much.